On Sunday evenings, we're in the Acts of the Apostles. They're doing a series of sermons we've called Turning the World Upside Down, learning lessons from the early church in the first century for ourselves as part of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this 21st century. And Alan has kindly read to us the first part of Acts chapter 9, Acts 9 verses 1 to 19. And this passage is taking our attention this evening, where we have Luke's account of the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, a conversion that was so dramatic Uh, that uh, we refer uh, to a Damascus road uh, conversion experience as a a shorthand uh, for dramatic uh, conversions uh, to uh, Jesus Christ. The first we heard of Saul was when he was consenting uh, to uh, Stephen's uh, martyrdom at the end of uh, chapter 7. Uh, And the last we heard of him thus far was when he was ravaging the church in the beginning of uh, chapter 8. But by the end of tonight's passage, he's enjoying Christian fellowship. He's had an encounter with the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ in a a vision, and he's been wonderfully converted, uh, gloriously uh, saved. He receives the Holy Spirit, He's baptized, and we read at the end of our passage, verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Paul gives his own testimony. He recounts his conversion story in his own words later in this book to the Jerusalem mob, in Acts chapter 22, and again to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. So this narrative is something we're going to come up against a number of times as we work our way through the Acts of the Apostles. And we'll look at it from different angles as we explore these various passages, the Lord willing, in the coming months. I'm calling the message from God's word tonight one of the most famous conversion stories ever. I had been going to call it the most famous conversion story ever. But then I suddenly wondered this afternoon whether that was the right thing to do. It's certainly one of the most famous, isn't it? Is it the most famous? I suddenly thought about the thief on the cross, perhaps, the dying thief. Maybe he'd rival Paul for being the most famous. And as I reflected on it, I thought, well, if there's any doubt about the title of the sermon, it hardly encourages you to take the rest of the sermon very seriously, does it, if, uh, if the title isn't reliable. So I'm going to uh, play safe, and instead of the most famous, we're going with one of uh, the most famous uh, conversion uh, stories ever. And I put it to you this evening that this narrative is striking, not just because 
a soul is converted and is converted in very dramatic fashion. But also because in this passage the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ appears in a vision and does so not once but twice. First to Saul, at that point an unbeliever, and then second to Ananias, a a believer. And I want us to think tonight about what the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ said to Saul and about what the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ said to Ananias. So as this morning, just two big points this evening. I know some of you like to pull my leg from time to time, but nearly all my sermons have three points. Well, today you only had two points in the morning, and you only had two points at night. So maybe that tells you I need my holiday these next few days. Uh, perhaps I'll be back next Sunday morning with uh, a seven-pointer. We'll all just have to, have to wait and see. But two points this morning, two big points tonight. Number one, what the unbeliever needs to know about the church. And number two, some of you are there already, what the church needs to know about the unbeliever. So we begin, number one, with what the unbeliever needs to know about the church. As we explore a little, we can't plumb all the depths or scale all the heights, but as we explore a little, uh, what uh, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ says to Saul in the first half of our passage as he appears uh, to him in uh, a vision. Three things. Number one, to fight against the church is to fight against Christ. To fight against the church is to fight against Christ. Alan began to read at the beginning of the chapter, and immediately we're told, verse 1, Saul's still breathing threats and murder against the early church. It becomes clear in the first two verses of the chapter that he still wants the early church to be exterminated as soon as possible. But suddenly, verses 3 and 4, there's a great light, and Saul falls to the ground, And he hears a voice speaking. It's the voice of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Note the language. Jesus could have said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these Christians? But he didn't say that. Jesus could have said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? But he didn't say that either. Rather, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me the Lord Jesus Christ he is risen and ascended he is in glory sitting at the father's right hand how can Saul be persecuting him he is persecuting Jesus because to fight against the church 
is to fight against Christ. There are a number of scriptures uh, dotted through uh, the Bible where believers, the body of Christ, are described as being the apple of Christ's eye. What we think about the church is what we think about Christ. What we do to or with the church is what we would do to or with Jesus Christ. The unbeliever's attitude to the church is the unbeliever's attitude to the Saviour. You see, this is personal for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? But Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To fight against the church is to fight against Christ. Second thing the unbeliever needs to know about the church, to fight against Christ will always be a losing battle. It will. To fight against Christ will always be a losing battle. Saul responds, verse 5, who are you, Lord? Notice the Lord there. Saul is asking, who are you? Because he doesn't know exactly who it is that's speaking to him, but he says, who are you, Lord? Because he knows that such is the dramatic nature of this vision that, that it must be the Lord who is appearing to him. And the Lord replies, emphasizing the point we've just made, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he goes on to say to Saul, it is hard for you, verse 5, to kick against the goads. Now perhaps... This goad uh, language isn't uh, something that we talk about every day, kicking against the goads. Though we do talk sometimes about goading somebody, don't we? As if we sort of uh, give them a bit of a poke and uh, see what happens. The picture here of the, uh, of the goads is really of, of the kind of spike stick that would be used to drive cattle. And uh, this spike stick would be used to drive cattle. And uh, if the ca- cattle knew what was, what was best for them, well, they would go with, with, the, with, the, with the spike stick. They wouldn't kick against it. So Jesus is saying to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. It's always hard for the unbeliever to kick against Christ. Because to fight against Christ will always be a losing battle. You see, unbelievers may seem able to resist the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a world where full of unbelievers that that seem uh, quite happy and quite content in their resistance to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the scriptures are clear that the unbeliever can only resist the Lord Jesus Christ so much and for 
so long. Because it is hard to kick against the goats. The unbeliever can never resist the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately. To fight against him will always be a losing battle. Sooner or later, the unbeliever must either feel his mercy or feel his judgment. And either way, Christ will triumph. Either triumphing in mercy as another sinner comes to faith in the Savior. Or triumphing in judgment as another impenitent sinner is finally dealt with at the last. To fight against Christ will always be a losing battle. So we're thinking under this first big point about what the unbeliever needs to know about the church. We've said, number one, to fight against the church is to fight against Christ. And number two, to fight against Christ will always be a losing battle. But now number three, only Christ's power can turn an unbeliever into a believer. You cannot save yourself. Only Christ in his power can save you. Saul, we are told, verse 6, is trembling and uh, astonished. He asks, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's the kind of what must I do language that we find from time to time in the Acts of the Apostles. But you notice it's the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ who takes all the initiative in this encounter. It's Jesus who appears to Saul. It's Jesus who overwhelms Saul by the light so that he falls to the ground as he hears the voice. It's Jesus who speaks powerfully to Saul. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ takes all the initiative here. And in response To Saul's question, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord says to him, end of verse 6, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So in response to Saul's question, I'm paraphrasing, What must I do? The Lord Jesus replies, This you must do. This. Is what you're to do. You're to arise. You're to go into the city. And you'll be told. What you must do. What must happen. Next. And so that's what Saul does. He arises from the ground. Verse 8. When he opens his eyes. He can't see anyone or anything. He's been temporarily blinded. He's led by the hand. And brought to Damascus. And he's there three days without sight, neither eating nor drinking. But you see here, something of the power of Christ. Not Saul taking the initiative, but Christ taking the initiative. All Saul can do is ask, what must I do? And the Lord says, this you must do. And Saul knows 
he must do it. It's reminiscent of another famous conversion just a few chapters later in the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 16 and the Philippian jailer. The jailer there in Philippi. You remember he famously asked, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? And was famously answered, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for Saul, as for the Philippian jailer, as for everybody who'd ever become a Christian before, and for everybody who's ever become a Christian since, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone that can say. Yes, we believe upon him, but it's not ultimately our faith that saves us. It's the one in whom we exercise faith. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and his Calvary work that we've been thinking about around the Lord's table this evening. His life, his death, his resurrection. He has done it all. We simply trust in him. He works by his power. He gives us grace to repent and grace to believe so that we trust in him and trusting in him. We are saved. This was what Saul needed to understand all those years ago. And if you're here tonight and you're not yet saved, my friend, this, from this passage tonight, is what the unbeliever needs to know about the church. To fight against the church is to fight against Christ. To fight against Christ will always be a losing battle. And only Christ's power can turn an unbeliever into a believer. It is impossible for you to save yourself. But what you can't do for yourself, the Lord Jesus Christ can do for you. And he will do when you cry out to him. So, first big point, what the unbeliever needs to know about the church. Second and only other big point tonight, what the church needs to know about the unbeliever. And we're moving now from the Risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ's appearance to Saul, an unbeliever in a vision, to his appearance to Ananias, a believer, in the second of these two visions recorded in our passage. And again, there are three things that I want to highlight with the Lord's help. First of all, every Christian should be willing to reach out to unbelievers. We're introduced to Ananias, first of all, as a certain disciple at Damascus, verse 10. But then we're told his name, Ananias. And uh, we're told that to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he called him by name. And it becomes clear that the Lord wants Ananias to go And to reach out to Saul. To go and to find this man. And to go and to help this man. To go and to befriend this man. And to go and to receive this man. Among other people of God. But we're looking at it in the general just at this point. 
The Lord is asking an individual to reach out to an individual. An individual believer to reach out to an individual who, so far as Ananias knows, is still an unbeliever. Now, of course, this is a very specific event. And uh, the Lord is asking Ananias to do something a very particular. But I believe there's a general principle here. That the Lord would call each of his people by name. And he would have us all to have the heart that he gave to Ananias. To be willing to reach out to those who are as yet unsaved. The Lord said Ananias. And Ananias said here I am Lord. I know that that might be the response of each one of us. As believers to the Lord tonight. Here I am. Willing to serve you. However, you would have me to do so. And we cannot read the New Testament without seeing repeatedly this emphasis upon individuals being used to reach out to uh, other individuals. Now, it's also clear from the New Testament that there's a place uh, for what we sometimes call corporate evangelism. For us doing evangelism together as, Lord's, as the Lord's people, as Local churches. We believe in corporate evangelism. But there's also a big New Testament emphasis upon personal evangelism. Upon our responsibility as individuals. In different ways, at different times, according to our different circumstances. To reach out to others on the behalf of our Saviour. And the danger is that an overemphasis on corporate evangelism can lead to an underemphasis upon personal evangelism. And instead of it being, well, the more corporate evangelism we do, the better we become at personal evangelism, often the more corporate evangelism we do, the worse we become at personal evangelism. The two are to be held in balance. Both are important. But we cannot hide our responsibility in personal evangelism, hide from our responsibility in personal evangelism behind the corporate evangelism of the local church. And we should never forget, of course, that the church isn't so much an institution as a body made up of individuals. So every Christian should be willing to reach out to unbelievers. A second thing the church needs to be convinced of about the unbeliever is this. Christ can and often does. That's important, not just can. But Christ can and often does save the most unlikely people. Saul of all people. I guess if we could have got into the heads of the Christians uh, there in the early church in Damascus and uh, found out who they thought was about the least likely person ever to be converted, Saul would have been at the top or very near the top of that list. Oh, they believed in Christ's power to save. They knew he'd save them. Uh, they knew he'd save others. They knew he could save anybody. 
But would he really save somebody like Saul? And yet that's precisely what he does. The Lord tells Ananias, verse 11, to arise and go to the street called Straight, Straight Street, and inquire at the house of Judas for one Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Ananias is sent of all people. Saul. Saul was one of the last people Christians would have expected to be converted. And yet he is one of the first, not the first, but one of the first converts whose detailed testimonies we read about in the Acts of the Apostles. He would have been the bottom of many Christians' lists of likely converts. But he was at the top of the Saviour's list of people whom he would pursue and people whom he would save. And there's a lesson for us there, isn't there? We know in one sense it takes just as much of Christ's grace and power to save any one of us. It's not as if there's some kind of league table and, well, you know, some of us aren't actually that bad after all. And, and yes, we need Christ's grace and power to save us, but, but just a bit of grace and just a, a bit of power. No. No, we need Christ's grace and power. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, wherever we've been. It's the same grace, the same power that saves anyone. The respectable sinner the notorious sinner. But time and again, in the days of the early church and in the annals of church history since, we find Christ saving the most unlikely. We find Christ pursuing those whom his church would very often write off. Oh, may there be none that we would write off May there be none in our community that we would think, well, the Lord would never save them. May there never be any who would walk in through these doors and we would think, well, how likely is it that they would ever be converted? I put it to you, my friend, the more unlikely it is, perhaps in reality, the more likely it is. Because we have a Savior who delights in saving the most unlikely of people. Saul was one such. There have been many more like him since. And may there be many others like him. Even who shall be saved in this place. And become a part of this local church family. So we're thinking about what the church needs to know about the unbeliever. This is our second big point tonight. We've said every Christian should be willing to reach out to unbelievers. Christ can and often does save the most unlikely people. But there's something more. This is it, number three. An unbeliever's past is no bar to their future usefulness. An unbeliever's past is no bar to their future 
usefulness. Because the striking thing as our passage comes towards the close is this. That Saul wasn't just converted. I put the just in inverted commas as if that were a small or an insignificant thing. Of course it's not. But Saul wasn't just converted. But Saul, who had been the arch persecutor of the early church, became by the grace of God, Paul the great apostle. Arguably the greatest of the apostles. The apostle to the Gentiles. His past was no bar to his future usefulness. This is intimated from the get-go. No sooner has Saul been converted than we read the Lord telling Ananias, verse 15, go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Yes, we know Paul would suffer many things for Christ's name's sake. And yet how remarkably he would be used in the work of Christ, in the progress of the gospel, in the extension of his kingdom. There's always a danger in church circles that we put people in a box because of their past before they were converted. And we think, well, yes, the Lord saved them. And we're thrilled that he saved them. But of course, they've got this past. And so, yes, they're saved. But can they ever really be very useful? And they can be limited and restricted and hemmed in. Well, that's not the Lord's way. Here is Saul. He's got the worst of pasts. And yet what future usefulness lies Ahead of him. And hadn't conducted a scientific experiment. But I put it to you that you could probably demonstrate from church history. That more often than not. It has been those who have had some of the worst pasts. Before they were saved. That have been most significantly and obviously and notably used of God after their conversion. So this passage tonight is teaching us we should write no one off. Neither in terms of salvation, but nor in terms of usefulness. Because Christ is able to save whomever he will. And Christ is able to use whomever he will so as we think about Saul's dramatic conversion there on the road to Damascus and how the Lord would not just save him dramatically but use him mightily in his service 
how it should encourage us to pray for great things, to look for great things, to rejoice in great things when they happen, to encourage great things as they develop, not to put any limits upon the Almighty, but expect Him to save the most unlikely and sometimes to do so very dramatically. And then to use such people significantly in ways you may never use me or may never use you. But we are all in his hands. We are all at his disposal. It is a privilege to be saved. It is a privilege to be of any use in the kingdom of Christ. But all that we might see unlikely people being saved and unlikely converts being used in unlikely ways and that we may not be the sort that would try to rein them in but that we would be the sort that would give them their wings and let them fly who knows what God can do who knows what God will do Let's be sure we're working with him and not against him. And let's rejoice in whoever he saves and in whoever he uses. Amen.